this year, one of our key goals is to become biblically literate. And we have different starting places uh, among our people. So some of you, you have a really good grasp of the Bible. Some of you would be petrified if I ever even uh, put you on the spot with a question. This morning, I would say it's okay. This year, I'd say it's okay. That's why we've kind of started last week understanding God's word by teaching you how to study God's word yourself and how to be in God's word yourself. And let me just be blunt as your, as your, your pastor and, and hopefully your shepherd that you got to do that. You got to get into God's word regularly if you hope to really get out of God's word, which is why we started last week. Um, but this week, I want to teach you a, a, a sermon or I share with you a lesson that's really on a, a section of scripture you've probably never had a sermon on ever. In fact, I guess we wouldn't quite call it scripture, but it is the table of contents. It's at the beginning, right? Uh, now, we look at it every once in a while because somebody might ask us, where is such and such a book? And we have to look it up. I remember one time, maybe I've told you this story, I was sitting in the front row at one of our annual conferences. So this is while I was your senior pastor, and the speaker up front had said to turn to one of the, it was actually one of the minor prophet books, and we'll look at that in a minute. And uh, I, I couldn't figure out, I couldn't place in my head where that was. I wasn't even sure quite had a turn. And I thought, well, that's all we need to do is a pastor, you know, in the front row, like going left and right and left and right, trying to figure out how to get to it, right? So I looked at the table of contents. Um, and afterwards, I'm talking to this speaker, um, and he said, uh, I noticed you look up in the table of contents. <laughs> you know, and I said, yeah, I just couldn't, fi I couldn't remember where it was. And then he told me this quick little story about a time where he was on stage and this thought came into his head of a passage that he had remembered, and he didn't want to quote the passage offhand, so he decided he'd look it up, and he couldn't remember where the book was. <laughs> and so I felt a lot better, well, a lot better. That's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this, and we're going to basically ask the question, what is our Bible made up of? What, what is in there, right? Some of this you might know really well. I'll give you a little bit of side commentary on some things, but I want to make sure we have it all squared away. Next week, we're going to start a series walking through the book of John. And the way I taught you last week to study it on your own is exactly how I'm studying a passage, putting it in to sermon form, and giving it to you. So if you wanted, you could next week carry one of those soaps, S-O-A-P-S, that we talked about last week. You would see how that shows up in every sermon when we walk through the book of John. And so that'll start next week, and we'll do that for the first 12 chapters. Why? Because you might know the book of John. The first 12 chapters is this whole lead-up saga, and then the second half of John is all focused around the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. And so we're going to lead up to the first 12, and then we'll pick up the Passion one at a different time. So sound good? All right, grab your sermon notes if you have them this morning. If you don't, slip, them up, uh, slip your hand up, and we'll make sure that you get one. And you can jump into this, and uh, we'll take a look at it. So, yeah, we'll take, uh, guys, take some lights up uh, for us, if you would, and we'll be able to look at our notes. All right, about the Bible, that's what we're calling this. So, you got your Bible this morning? Let me just see if you got a, a Bible this morning. I saw some people walking in with some Bibles, yeah, this morning, right, yeah. It's okay if you hold up your phone, too, I understand. It was just the Unplugged series, we didn't want to do that. Good, all right. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to start at the beginning. The table of contents basically tells us that this book is made up 
around various smaller books or various smaller sections that we call or are known as books. And you'll see them in there. Uh, if you flip through your pages, ever so often you get a heading, you get a new name of that book, and that's what the Bible is made up of. Now, uh, you may already know this, but for the sake of anyone that might be watching or in the future, or if you use this, this to actually give one of your friends who needs an introduction to the Bible, that it doesn't perfectly start from day one and have this perfect chronology all the way through the Bible. We kind of have this forward and then a little bit of backstory and then forward and then a little bit of back and that kind of thing. That's how the Bible works out. We're going to try to sort that all out this morning, uh, but that's where it's, where, where it's at. So the Bible, number one on your, on your outline, the Bible is made up of two testaments. You might know that, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, you probably don't even have to be in church that much to kind of have understood or grasped this somewhere. Or maybe, you know, you went to a vacation Bible school for one week and you remember Old Testament, New Testament. Why do they call it old? Why do they call it new? I don't know. It all seems old, right? And the New Testament is 2,000 years old, right? Seems pretty old. Um, well, if you understand to the word testament, and this is a reminder from a previous sermon series we walked through, testament means covenant. That's what the word means. So what we're talking about here is the Bible is made up primarily of two covenants. Now, there's a lot of other story that goes with it, but kind of the main thing in play is these covenants that we find. Now, there's an overarching commitment God makes to Abraham at the beginning in Genesis where he says, I will bless everyone, all nations through you. And that's kind of what plays out through the rest of the Bible. But then comes this covenant, the first one that God makes with Israel. He makes with his people this nation of Israel that he is the one that has established this nation. And he makes a covenant with them. You know this covenant. We sometimes call this covenant the law. We might call the covenant the Ten Commandments, right? The Torah is another uh, a name that, that's used often. So that is this covenant that's made with Israel. Then we have the covenant with believers, all believers. And this actually shows up when Jesus comes and he is establishing a new covenant. Jesus is actually fulfilling the old covenant. Those are his words. And then he is establishing a new covenant with all those who would believe in Jesus. The whole book is made up around these two covenants. The Old Testament primarily talks about the covenant with Israel, and the New Testament primarily talks about this new covenant Jesus is making with all believers. The second thing, let's just look at this Old Testament. The Old Testament is made up of how many books? 39, yeah, it's made up of 39 books. So we got 39 distinct books that are found in the Old Testament. They range in all kinds of different genres, right? All kinds of different lengths as well. When I was young too in high school and I was a new Christian and we had reading day and I wanted to read through a whole book of the Bible, you know, I think I've told you before, I'd look to those one chapter books, you know, and I could say, oh, I read. Well, they're a little easier in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a couple short ones too that are very confusing. Um, and then there's some really long ones. Uh, as well in the Old Testament. So there's a, a lot that, that range there. Let's break down what they are. If you start at the beginning, 
we have five books at the beginning that are known as the Pentateuch. That's the, 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 the academic word, if you want to use it, the Pentateuch, or the law, right? Or you might have heard the books of Moses, it's said that way, or as, as our Jewish friends would say, the Torah. So this is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are our first five books. If you've ever started out and you said, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, and you said, I'm, I'm going to just start in Genesis and I'm just going to read, and you notice that Genesis is all about creation, right, at the beginning, and then all about kind of God's establishment with people, and we get God's character and who he is, and we get uh, these stories about Abraham, and then it goes into the stories about Joseph, and that kind of rounds out the book. And, you know, it's 50 chapters long, so it's a, a nice long book, but it's history. So if you love history, besides a couple little genealogies that are in there, it's history, and so you probably just kind of ate up the history of it. Then we get into Egypt or into Exodus, and we find that those same people from that Joseph had helped multiply in Egypt, they become slaves, and Pharaoh is holding them captive. We learned about this in our Sabbath series as well. And God comes in and says, the character of God says, you're not going to be slaves. You don't have to, to work for this Pharaoh anymore. He delivers them, right? And so it leads them to the promised land. And that's what's known as Exodus, right? And you probably got into the book of Exodus, and you got reading, and you got through about the first 19 or so chapters of Exodus, and you're like, man, this is great history too. And it's you know, and, and you're starting to get a, a little bit of Moses going and going, this is what God says. And Pharaoh goes, well, I don't care what God says, you know, and there's this back and forth and then plagues show up and frogs are everywhere. And so I don't know, you might have been into that. And then you started to hit the law, right? <laughs> and it slowed down. <laughs> and you notice that kind of the second half of Exodus kind of mixes law and history. And so you're like, you might have stayed with it because there was some history in there. But then you hit Leviticus. And it's a lot of law. And if you, went, if you jump forward to Deuteronomy, and it's a lot of the law. It's a lot of them teaching the covenant God is making with Israel. Listen, today, if I were to just start and say, let me just go over every kind of rule we have around here at the church or every expectation we kind of have. I mean, everything. Let's just say you were absolutely clueless. And we got all the way down to minute things like, hey, when we're in here and like, you know, uh, Brian, like this morning, which was awesome, Brian. So um, we got some of our praise teams still out in quarantine. So, you know, Brian took it all on himself. So it was awesome. But if we're like, Brian, when Brian's up here playing and, and leading in a song, like, don't all you guys stand and like talk and have your normal conversations. <laughs> you know, if you want to do that, go outside. Like, if I were to write all of that out in the expectations here, Eventually, I mean, that would be a pretty long thing. That is what God is doing for his people. He is giving them brand new culture. And so he's writing all that stuff out. So what sometimes is hard for us to work through, it is life. And it is new life God is offering his people that didn't exist when they were slaves. So maybe go back and read it this year and try to think about it through those lens and, uh, and may maybe it'll be a little easier to pick up. Numbers, if you get in there, I don't know what to tell you. It's a genealogy. Um, it's rough. <laughs> so, um, now, if you're one that you're like, you're just, you just want to geek out on this stuff, and you're like, hey, I wanna, I'm going to study that name and that name and that family tree and those type of things, endless amount of studies you can do. The book of Numbers will keep you busy as long as you want to stay busy. But I realize it's a tougher one to work through. That's why I often tell people, 
get into it. If you want to read through the Bible, get Genesis, get yourself all the way through Exodus chapter 20. And it's okay to move forward to Judges and then pick up history again and then add in maybe one chapter a day in those other areas. Read your history, maybe three or four chapters. Read one chapter of the law stuff so you don't get completely bogged down uh, in that. That's the Pentateuch. That's the law, right? That's the first five books of the Bible. Then we go into a, a set of books. It's called the history books. And you'll notice in the Old Testament, if you start in the book of Joshua and you just read forward to Esther, now, you're not going to get a perfect chronology. Sometimes there's some, some step backs and step forwards. There's some overlapping that we find there. Samuel, Kings, we get some overlap. But in general, you get this forward-moving history that's found in these books. And so if you're one that you like to read more history type of stuff, you want to know what happened with God's people, what were the things they did really good, what were the things that they blew it on, well, when were the times where they invaded somebody else, when did they get invaded, eventually they all go into captivity because they've been disobedient to God, what was life like in captivity, and then eventually they got to come out of captivity. It started with Nehemiah, and then you might know some of that story. All of that shows up in these books here. Now, here's what I need to tell you. Joshua through Esther is known as the history books. So it's not like you get to Esther and then a new history starts in the book of Psalms or the new history starts when you get to the prophets later on. Think about it this way. Here's your history books. We have Joshua through Esther from your side, Joshua through Esther right here. Then we're going to have the rest of the Old Testament. Grab that in your arms, pick it up, slide it over, and drop it right into the history. It flows somewhere in all of that history is what we find the rest of these. So when we look at Psalm and we're like, hey, that Psalm was written by David. Wait, but David showed up way back there in the history books. Yes, because the book of Psalm actually shows up. Now, they're not all by David, actually, the book of Psalms is scattered out over many, many, many years, right? But they kind of sh show up in there. Same with the prophets, which we'll get to in just a second. They show up in here. So here's the general history you get. We get the arrival into the promised land that God promised them. We get the growth and the prosperity of the nation of Israel. We get the disobedience of kings. And if you see it, it's like good king, bad king, good king, bad king, up and down, just like this. And almost every time you get this passage, and it shows up quite a bit, where it'll say, like, once again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they became subject to, meaning somebody came on and ruled over them because they were disobedient to God. You get a lot of that. Eventually, the nation is wiped out almost entirely. In fact, if they didn't take people into exile and captivity, Israel would have been wiped out entirely. But the Babylonians come in and they just wipe uh, most of Jerusalem and, and the nation out, take them into captivity. Eventually, they, there is a, a king who has compassion on Nehemiah and lets him return to try to figure out with the remnants of what's there how to establish Jerusalem again. And like we talked about last week, Nehemiah brings the law back in. He starts to read the law out loud in public settings. And so we get this return to, uh, the, to the return of the nation and in the building. Certainly not on the level it was, but this, this growth. And then we get this kind of 
silence. What's known as kind of a, a hundreds of years of silence between uh, the end of this history, which would be kind of like at the uh, end of es, uh, Malachi, which is the last minor prophet, to the Gospels. So that's kind of a, an overview of the history. Um, it's, there's a lot more in there than what I just said. So jump in there and check out the history. Then we get this book uh, called Job. Job's a standalone book. In fact, if you want to know, like, hey, where does Job show up time-wise, uh, chronology-wise uh, in there? And wh where is he connected with other characters? Line up 15 biblical scholars up here, and you probably get uh, a dozen or so different responses in that. It's a fairly standalone book. It doesn't have great connection points to other things in Scripture. So it's a book that, that they felt like this really describes the character of God, the journey of faith here. Um, and so uh, it's a book that shows up there, but it doesn't perfectly fit in to these other, uh, these other history books there. Then we go on to this history, or excuse me, we call it wisdom and poetry section that's there. And so uh, if you've read uh, much of those, usually, I don't know if, about you, but usually we read like one chapter at a time of some of these, or we read a few verses at a time, or we look up something that is one verse that might be an encouragement to us uh, or a challenge to us, right, that shows up here. These are the wisdom and poetry books that show up. And so we get a lot of this here. Now, when we're in second grade and we're learning poetry, we learn little haikus and we learn little, you know, four stanza things that rhyme. Not quite that kind of poetry that shows up here. But if you were to go back in the, the, the most literal of translations, or even if you wanted to so venture into the Hebrew here and try to read it, you start to pick up on this rhythm that's there. You start to pick up on these like phrases that are there, and so you definitely can see how it shows up in the poetry. So your translations, your English translations, they often do the best they possibly can, or they actually paraphrase or change some things around so that they can try to keep that poetry and that feeling going that was originally uh, intended there. Certainly in Psalms we see that, a bit of, we see it in Proverbs. Um, then we got Ecclesiastes, which is a book of wisdom often attributed to, to Solomon, uh, writing there. Uh, it's a weird wisdom because, you know, it seems like he's like, oh, nothing, nothing's of value. Everything stinks. We're, you know, uh, but you have to understand there's a little bit of tongue in cheek. There's a little bit of devil's advocate kind of uh, thing that, that, that the writer is playing if it is Solomon there and read it all together as one big chunk. Then we get the Song of Songs there, um, our uh, Song of Solomon, it's sometimes called. That's the love book, you know, you often find in there and uh, I mean, he is writing this and speaking this and you see poetic things that are written about uh, about his love and that type of thing now if you love those little uh those little diagrams that have all the books like in different sections you ever seen one of those sometimes we have bookmarks that look like that uh, you're gonna see that lamentations is often put later with the major prophets but really technically per genre it is fits more in one of these wisdom book it's the a lament type of things and even though it's not written like the psalms are written in fact there's a little more narrative that shows up in there it works more in this history and poetry but on your bookmark if you have one of those or on those lists you'll see it slid over why because if you actually look in your bible that's where it actually fits in the bible if you're trying to memorize the books 
in order. It actually comes just after these poetry books. All right, so let's just get into these prophets because they can be a little confusing. So we have two kinds of prophets. We have the major prophets and the minor prophets. Anybody know the difference? Why, why is one major and one's minor, right? I know you won't be able to hear at home, but anybody have a thought? Yeah, because one's important and one's not important, all right? So, no, I know, but we treat it that way sometimes. <laughs> we, we read the majors and we leave the minor prophets alone. No, it is simply because the major ones, there's more material. They're longer. They're bigger books, and the minor ones are shorter books. That's the only reason they're called major and minor. Remember, when they were writing these out, it's not like the prophet said, I'm going to write a major one today. Now, that's not. This was later put together by the editors to call it the major and the minor, just so we understand uh, the difference here. The major prophets, they're longer books there. Daniel would be the shortest of those four, um, but they show up as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. All four of these have prophecies about Jesus. And so that's another major theme that shows up in here that does not show up in all the minor prophets, that they speak about Jesus and the coming of Jesus also. We see it heavily in the first three, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, but you'll see it show up in Daniel uh, as well. Then we have our minor prophets. And in our minor prophets, it's a whole list of, of books here. In fact, a lot of times, we don't even know how to pronounce them, right? So we just kind of roll on. Um, but minor prophets, they're a little hard to understand without a little bit of commentary help sometimes. Anybody ever face that if you've tried to tackle and read the minor prophets? Yeah. In fact, they're a little hard to understand with commentary help sometimes uh, as well. But if you would find where this minor prophet is attached to the history that we just talked about, Joshua through Esther, and you were to read some of the history along with the minor prophet, things open up a little bit better for you. So if I were to write a letter to somebody and you were just to read that one letter, you might be like, well, I kind of understand some of the stuff, but I'm, it's, it's out of context. I don't know, like, what's he really referring to or what's going on? But if I were to sit you down and say, let me tell you the whole story about my whole interaction with this person or my whole relationship with this person over the years, and then you read the letter, you'd be like, okay, I get it. I get, I get a lot of it. Same thing with, with the minor prophets here. So we have Hosea and Joel and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi round out all of those. So now all of the prophets, they fit into that history. And this is kind of how we think about them. So if you ever try to read the prophets, and you're like, I have no idea what I'm reading. I don't know where this fits in. It doesn't make sense. Let me give you a brief overview that will help at least some. The prophets are set up in three time periods. Pre-exile, meaning before the Babylonians came in, kind of wiped out the people and took them to captivity. Then during exile, meaning the ones that wrote while they were in exile, and then post-exile, after they were able to return home to Jerusalem and the prophets that spoke or wrote at that point. So look back at your prophet page really quick. Um, I'll, I'll say them fast, but if you so want to just kind of write out, you can do this. It won't be on the screen, but you can write it in. Um, pre, Isaiah, Jeremiah, those are pre-exile prophets in the majors. Then in the minors, we get Hosea, Joel, Amos, uh, Jonah. Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, those are all pre 
Those all prophesy before, which means their history is going to show up before the exile. Then we have exile prophets. There's two of them, Ezekiel and Daniel. Daniel is the clearest one that speaks about what life looks like in exile. One of the reasons he goes to the, the, the lion's den, right, is because he's worshiping when he's not supposed to be worshiping, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that story shows up there as well because they won't bow down to the king while they're in exile. And then we have our post-exile. After the return home, right, then we get uh, uh, Joel, Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So, hey, that could be a little help if you want to read those to try to find the history. Then comes the New Testament. The New Testament is made up of how many books? 27 books make up the New Testament. So a total of 66 books total uh, in the Bible. The first section of books, you know this, right? It's called the Gospels. Gospel simply means good news. So it's the declaration of the good news in Jesus Christ. These are what the Gospels. Now, they are not perfectly biographies. So when we think sometimes as these is biographies of Jesus Christ, there is a lot of biography, but this is more what the author wants to tell an audience about Jesus, right? So if you're sitting down and you're going to say, I'm going to write the biography of Tom Raven, right? It's going to be a bestseller. It's going to be incredible, right? So you would actually, you'd want to start, where was he born? You know, who are his parents? And you'd start from the beginning and you work your way all the way up. Some of this actually starts that way. Matthew, Luke, they start with the birth, right? But if you read both of those, you're like, wait a second. They don't all tell me the same thing, right? And I get the same setting, the same time, the same characters. But um, one talks about shepherds. The other talks about wise men. They don't both talk about that. So remember, they're talking to a specific audience and telling that audience what they want to tell them about Jesus and about the good news. So we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show up. Matthew is almost an entirely Jewish audience he's writing to. He's, he's expecting these people know the Old Testament, they know the prophecies, they know what's coming, and you can see he writes that way in that, uh, that gospel, which is why we see something like a genealogy show up in the book of Matthew. Why? Because for his audience, he is setting Jesus in the proper timetable. Why? Because the people would know, the Jewish people would know, this has to fall in a certain genealogy here to be correct from what the prophets said. Then we get to Mark, and Mark's not concerned about that at all. Mark is writing probably to a mostly Gentile audience. In fact, Mark is most likely the scribe of Peter. So these are likely Peter's words, Peter's gospel, that is written down by John Mark, and is written mainly to a Gentile audience. And so you see a lot of the stuff that Matthew puts in there is dropped off in there. Now, there are some uh, other biblical scholars that said, no, 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 Mark writes to Jewish audience too. He just is short and quick with it. And then Matthew uses Mark's gospel to give a more full, extended version of the gospel. So those are two different views uh, there. Then we get the book of Luke. Luke is written by, now we can call him a historian, a theologian here, and he is writing specifically to one person to say, this is what you need to know about Jesus. And that one person is Greek, an officer. And so as he's writing to that person, you see Luke is, is more orderly than the others. He would be the one that's mostly called biography, the book of Luke, if you were to work through that 
uh, as well. Then we get John. John's on his own timetable. He's his own type of thing. He's concerned with one thing. He wants you to know Jesus was the son of God. And he breaks it down into basically saying, look, my time has not yet come. It shows up over and over in John. And then we hit chapter, the middle of chapter 12, and he says, hey, my time has come. And then we get the last week of his life. And so John is focused on that, right? And John seems to be the one who was most embedded with Jesus during this time. And so it shows up in the book. We're actually going to see that over the next many weeks as we look at that. So those are our Gospels that show up. Then we get this history book. So if you love history again, we get back to history here. There's one like straight history book. It doesn't mean there's not history that doesn't show up in all the other books of the New Testament. But this is all about one thing. It is about the expansion of the Christian faith. Now, sometimes we say it's the growth of the church. Think more broad. It is about evangelism, the mission, the growth of Christianity, period. And so we find it all through there. We find a mission to the, the Jews. And then we see this expand to the Gentiles and to everywhere. Then we have to decide this kind of tension between, well, what do these new Gentile converts have to do that us Jewish people have been doing all up till now? And they have to deal with that kind of conflict as well. And then you have some people coming in and saying, this is all bunk. This whole thing about Jesus is junk, right? That's why Paul eventually gets arrested too, right? So that's what we find all throughout the book of, of Acts. But it is this growth and the expansion of the Christian church. Why do I push so much about us being about mission and evangelism and about spreading the good news? Because if you were to take the Gospels, which is about good news, the only history book, which is about the expansion of Christianity, and all of the letters, at least that Paul writes for sure, that are about speaking to new Christians and building them up, you can see how important this thing is. That we don't just come together as believers and enjoy one another and enjoy music and enjoy time here, but that we got to be out on mission doing these things. Because we can't read the Bible and not see that that is a dominant theme of this Christian faith. So uh, some of the main characters in the book of Acts. Uh, in fact, your Bible might have the heading. Uh, does anybody have an extended heading? It doesn't just say Acts. It says Acts of. So, yes, yeah, say it. What? Somebody said it. Yeah, Acts of the Apostles, for those at home that, that, heard, that heard Leah say it here. So, very good. I didn't hear your husband say it, Leah. So, <laughs> okay, all right. You might be covering for him. Oh, Acts of the Apostles, because it's basically a book about the apostles. And they show up. But let's face it, there's some main characters. Peter is a main character, and then Paul takes over for the rest of the book, and he's, he's a main character in there, which would make a sense that now we have this section in Scripture called the Pauline letters that show up. These are the letters written by Paul, right? You might know them. Romans, First and Second Corinthians. Now, we, we remember those a lot, right? Romans is kind of a theology book. It's a little confusing at times, written to the church in Rome. And then we have First and Second Corinthians. That's like belief in action. That's what Paul's talking about a, a lot at, at your wedding. They might have read the love chapter, right? That's from First Corinthians. And you thought, oh, this is all about my wedding, all about myself. No, you only read a short section. If you read actually chapters 11 through 13, you see this expanded understanding of how we put the Christian faith in action, and love is part of it. That's what the book 
is, is about. Now, then we get these, uh, can we say they're the confusing ones to remember sometimes? Because we remember, yeah, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, those are the big ones. Then we get Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And we go, whew, I can't keep those straight in my head, right? Anybody struggle with, with those? Anybody want to stand up and recite it real quick? No, you don't have to do that. Leah? No, you don't, you don't have to do that. Um, hey, I learned a way to, to memorize those. Do you like those little Ackerman? Uh, did I say that right? Ackerman? Whatever. Um, so this little way to remember, like you take the first letter of each of the words and you make something else. Here's what I saw. Take a look at your paper. So because you'll laugh at me unless you're actually looking at it. So go eat popcorn today, tonight, tomorrow. You remember it from now on. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus. There you go. That's your way to memorize them. If you're not clear, if you're close on what I just said, it's okay. It was probably my fault in explaining it. Then we have this little book of encouragement at the end, where where Paul takes a unique uh, experience there at the end. It's called Philemon or Philemon, however you want to pronounce it there, and it, it shows up there, a uh, short little book uh, as well. These are Paul's letters. This is what he's writing. Now, that section in the middle, Galatians through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, these books are about this, or these letters are about this. He is clarifying, or he is encouraging, or he is correcting. That's what's showing up there. And so when we read those, we see sometimes he says, I praise the Lord for you, that your faith is such an encouragement to me. And your letters you wrote to me while I was in prison lifted my spirit. We get things like that. But we also get time where he is actually clarifying Christian theology. He's saying, no, 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 this is what we believe. This is what we understand about Christ. This is how it works. Then he has some times where he's correcting them. One time he says, I can't believe you're, you're, you're actually abandoning the gospel for some other gospel, which is not really a gospel at all. So it's a correction of them in their thinking and their action as well. And this shows up. The reason I love that is that's what the church should be for us. Like we should be as Christians for one another this. Clarify things. Help each other in what is correct theology and correct Christian thought. Correct each other when we need to be corrected, right? Let's get off that little phrase like, well, you know, I don't want to judge anyone. Do you know what the Bible, when the Bible actually says that? We're only never called to do that as a Christian, judging a non-Christian for not believing the same thing that a Christian believes. But as Christian brothers and sisters, we're supposed to correct and speak into one another. Now, we can do it with a gentle spirit and a loving heart, and we can do it the correct way, right? But we're supposed to correct, and then we're supposed to encourage, lift each other up. A simple thing like, hey, good to see you this morning. Or, hey, I'm Tom. I don't think I know your name. Those type of things are encouraging type of things, little things like that. The church should be that for one another. First and Second Timothy and Titus, those are ones that are written uh, primary to, to leaders and to say this is what a leader should be about and above reproach in these areas. And so we find similar themes that actually show up in First and Second Timothy and in Titus as well. We get this standalone book uh, later. It's called the book of Hebrews. We don't know who the author is. Um, there's all kinds of, of different biblical study experts that say different things, but we don't know uh, who the author is. It's not identified, not clearly. It doesn't sound like a Pauline letter or one of the general letters as well. So no quite off, uh, author. We get 
uh, we get uh, content about correct beliefs there and about faith as well. What does faith really look like also? And so that's the book uh, of Hebrews there. Hebrews, whoever wrote it, has a clear understanding of the Old Testament and has an understanding of how faith worked out in the Old Testament as well, which is very helpful because sometimes we would quickly just say, well, you know, the Old Testament, that's just about a bunch of rules, do's and don'ts. The author of Hebrews knows otherwise. And then we get the general letters, and these are just different letters uh, from different authors. We get the book of James, which is about faith and doing action in our faith. First and second of Peter is about salvation, right, attributed to Peter. Then we come back to uh, John, the author of the, the Gospel of John, and we get first, second, third John, and then Jude, which is written by uh, Jude as well. And what we find, those, those are mainly those last four little books combating Gnosticism, which was a rising philosophy and thought that was challenging Christianity. And so we actually find there's three books in here that, that speak to that. Now, we don't call it Gnosticism today. You don't go around and say, if your friend says something on Facebook, and you go, that's so Gnostic of them. You know, we don't even use the phrase. But the same philosophies are out there. They're floating around just the same today. And so 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, and Jude, they're actually just as applicable today as they were. Finally, we get this uh, standalone uh, apocalyptic. I say standalone. It, it fits in. But it's the only one that's clearly apocalyptic. It's clearly talking about something that is not current and present. Now, there's four main views of interpreting Revelation and I don't know, about 10,000, you know, that maybe are not main views. But there's about four very clear main schools of thought here. We don't have time to go through them. Um, but uh, one of the, the thoughts that, that most Protestant churches have, have landed on is that there's some rehashing of history and setting into context. And then there's a looking forward to what will be um, in the end times or in later years, which is simply when it says end times what it means later than now. And so that shows up uh, in there. In fact, it's always the most popular one when people say, hey, what do you want to study? Can we study the book of Revelation? Well, that's a popular one to study uh, there as well. So there's your overview. Why should we look at the Bible? Really, three quick reasons on what you let Scripture uh, work through. The first is, is this. Let it encourage and bless you. Read Scripture so that it can encourage and bless you. You can't be encouraged and blessed by Scripture if you don't read Scripture. And so let it encourage and bless you. Here's the second one. Let it challenge and correct you as well. It's okay to read Scripture and go, ouch, that hit me hard. I wasn't thinking about that. That changes what I was thinking. That corrects me. Or that even rebukes me. It's okay. Scripture does that all throughout, and it's okay when it does it to us because it makes us better. When your kid strikes out in a game, you know, or blows it in, in whatever they're doing, right, you just tell them, hey, that'll make you better. It'll make you better. Same thing with Scripture. And then finally, mo let it motivate you to, to mission, to doing something with your faith, constantly asking yourself, who else needs to hear this and go tell them? Well, let me pray for you uh, on this. Lord, thank you for your word, and I pray that you would, Lord, now that we have this overview and understanding, Lord, that uh, you would help this to come alive to us as we get into the word daily, as we learned last week, and as we'll do together in the book of John starting next week. I pray in your son's name. Amen. All right. Hey, uh, remember, prayer texts will come out tomorrow.
Let us know how we can be praying for you uh, this week. It would be great if it's something personal.